Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for July 21st, 2021. I'm Glenn Fleischman in for Jackson Bird, who is on vacation. How did paper sizes fall into their century-long groove? How low-wage workers seem to have the upper hand in the job market despite pandemic job losses? And the very newest, freshest words are in. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Why is letter-sized paper 8.5 by 11 inches? It's a great question asked and answered by Mental Floss in a recent article leaning on a variety of existing research. The answer, they say, is that the molds used by the Dutch to make paper centuries ago were settled on around 44 inches because that's the widest that a papermaker or vat man could hold while dipping into the liquid slurry of pulp and lift back up to drain the water. A 17-inch depth is more obscure, but may again be related merely to physical capabilities. Divide 17 by 2 and 44 by 4, and you get 8 sheets of 8.5 by 11 paper. Boom! There you go. But do you know the story about the ham? A man is cooking a ham for his partner who asks, Why do you cut the ends off? Hmm, I don't know. My mother always did that. They visit the mother, and she says, Oh, I don't know. It makes it more juicy. My mother always cut the ends off. Finally, they visit Grandma in her retirement home. She holds up her hands a short distance apart and says, We had a pan that was only this wide, so I cut the ends off. That's how most mechanical traditions work. Inertia and history. As a historian of printing and type, I'll tell you that when Gutenberg printed his Bible, there were also standard paper sizes, but not many, because paper was used for very particular purposes, mostly for writing by hand, because printing mostly didn't exist yet. The Gutenberg Bible is printed on a size of paper known as royal, two pages on each side, folded down to about 12 by 17 inches or 30 by 42 centimeters. It's big. If you look up 19th century paper sizes to get closer to our era, you'll see lists like crown, demi, medium, royal, super royal, imperial, double demi, double medium, double royal, elephant, columbier, atlas, double elephant, antiquarian, foolscap, pot, double pot, and more. These are all uncut parent sheets, however, which would be used for printing multiple pieces of the same stationery, say, or pages of a book at once that are then cut or folded to size. The U.S. standardized back in 1921 on a paper size that was relatively common. Leon Wu writes about this at Modus. Quote, In 1921, a bizarre mix-up meant that the government formed two separate committees to determine paper sizes. The Permanent Conference on Printing established 8-inch by 10.5-inch as the U.S. government standard. 
In the same year, the Committee on the Simplification of Paper Sizes came up with 8.5 by 11-inch standards. It wasn't until over a half-century later that President Reagan ended the confusion by declaring 8.5 by 11s as the winner, end quote. Now, of course, 8.5 by 11 had already become the dominant paper size by then, but it's interesting to know there was an alternative that was also approved. In the U.S., we also commonly use legal size paper, 8.5 by 14 inches, and ledger or tabloid, 17 by 11 or 11 by 17 inches. Inkjet and laser printers are typically designed around one, two, or all three of these paper sizes, but often have feeds or trays that can handle some intermediate ones or even larger sizes. We mostly use those three sizes, though. Envelopes have their own numbering systems. Meanwhile, in Europe, a different model for paper sizes was developed. Where American paper has no mathematical relationship, the A series of papers is designed around the square root of 2, not the golden section, the square root of 2. The height-to-width ratio is always 1 to the square root of 2. An A0 sheet is 1 square meter in that ratio. Cut it in half to A1, cut that in half for A2, and so forth to A4, the world's most common paper size. A4 is 210 by 297 millimeters, or 8.3 inches by 11.7 inches. So close, but so different. Any parent sheet of A0, or larger sizes that are multiples, can be cut into any A size without any waste. There's a B series that starts at 1 meter wide, rather than being 1 meter in area, and it descends from there as the geometric mean of all A sizes. B series paper is used for somewhat different but standardized purposes. Frustratingly, the A-series paper was developed before American letter-sized paper was standardized by the U.S. federal government. It was standardized under Germany's DIN system in 1922. We could have had one world, one paper size. We missed our chance. I will leave you with one more paper thought. Every single thing we associate with fancy paper, a watermark, laid lines, a rough edge, called a deckled edge or a deckle edge after the deckle, the frame that goes onto a paper mold, all of these things effectively became unnecessary in the early 1800s with the invention of machine-made paper. Handmade paper rapidly became replaced in volume by machine-made paper, even though you can, of course, still today buy more carefully made handmade paper. But it's probably one hundredth of one percent of all paper sold, if not far less. And yet, we still cherish these things that disappeared in mass-produced paper two centuries ago. Think about that persistence of sense memory. Low-wage workers have many more options in the economy as the service sector races back to pre-pandemic occupancy rates. That's particularly the case in the restaurant industry, the hardest hit, along with hotels and motels. People working blue-collar jobs in factories, pink-collar in healthcare, and white-collar in relocated work-from-home offices, of course, saw job losses. But at the lowest point of the job fallout, the service sector lost 8 million jobs. Compared to just before the outbreak, the entire rest of the American economy combined lost 11 million. That's 19 million jobs overall that disappeared. Many of those non-service job losses were temporary. There were 5 million fewer jobs by May 2021 outside of restaurants, hotels, and the like, according to the Congressional Research Service's mid-June 2021 report, but those continue to come back strong. The service industry was still down nearly 2.5 million jobs at that point. But the issue isn't so much lost jobs now as jobs that can't be filled, two sides of the coin. Employment is counted in jobs occupied, not jobs being looked for. So the losses are against the jobs that were in place before the pandemic. 
rates of unemployment are still higher in most industries than before the pandemic, but we were at near record lows across the entire economy when the pandemic struck. The U.S. Labor Department reported that job openings were 9.2 million in May, barely budging since April. But remember, we're apparently still down 7.5 million jobs from before the pandemic. There's a mismatch there. NPR reported that there were 30% more job openings than there were in February 2020. So you have to reconcile the job openings and the lost jobs. It was almost impossible to fill some jobs before the pandemic. The higher rate of unemployment now reflects the generosity of supplementary unemployment insurance, which has come to an end or will soon come to an end in most states and federal relief payments, as well as some employers getting forgivable business loans that they had to use mostly for payroll, even if they could barely serve customers or produce goods. Many people who have never had a moment in their working lives to take a breath took one by necessity, and story after story in the last few months indicates that people stuck at the bottom of the economic ladder took the opportunity to climb a rung or two. While service jobs remained in abeyance from last summer, other industries were desperate for workers. Their existing employees had to be home with kids or be caretakers for parents or didn't feel safe returning to work. Deaths were common in some non-service industries too. Plus, millions contracted COVID-19 and some took quite a while to recover, even if not hospitalized. So some bus people, hotel cleaners, line cooks, food servers, and others shifted to jobs that offered better pay or more reliable, consistent hours and more chance of advancement over time. That's not a weird idea. A pair of stories yesterday advanced this even further. NPR noted that the average restaurant and bar wage barely budged over the last decade, starting at around $10 in 2011 and rising in adjusted 2011 dollars to twelve thirty-nine. That's $15.14 in current dollars today. That slow rise was even with major cities imposing $15 an hour minimum wages indexed to inflation. Average wages dropped slightly during the pandemic, but as jobs have returned, there's been a significant tick upwards. NPR notes that comes on the heels of people leaving. Quote, workers have been leaving jobs in restaurants, bars, and hotels at the highest rate in decades. Each month so far this year, about 5% of this massive workforce has called it quits. In May alone, that was 706,000 people. And now, help-wanted signs are everywhere, with a staggering 1.2 million jobs unfilled in the industry right when customers are crushing through the doors, ready to eat, drink, and finally socialize, end quote. One restaurant owner can't return to their previous schedule, even though there's demand. Quote, we used to be known as a late-night restaurant. We can't do that anymore. I don't have the staff, and people are exhausted, said Lori Torres, whose Ohio restaurant now closes earlier and stays closed on Mondays. She said she's been paying her staff bonuses and offered $17 an hour for a dishwasher job, and still three workers stood her up, end quote. And here's the whole economic debate in a nutshell from NPR, quote, Lamar Cornett, a lifelong restaurant worker from Kentucky, has watched the wage issue get tense on his local food service Facebook group. Any job posting below $15 an hour would get jeers and demands for higher pay. Then the employers would get defensive, saying they couldn't afford big raises. The immediate response every time was, then you can't afford to be in business, bro, Cornette said. End quote. The New York Times reported in a parallel story on the rise in wages. The story quotes an email from Hudson Reilly, Senior Vice President for Research at the National Restaurant Association, quote, In January, 8% of restaurant operators rated recruitment and retention of workforce as their top challenge. By May, that number had risen to 72%, end quote. 
The Times notes, quote, In the first five months of the year, restaurants put out 61% more workers wanted posts for waiters and waitresses than they had in the same months of 2018 and 2019 before the coronavirus pandemic shut down bars and restaurants around the country, according to data from Burning Glass, a job market analytics firm, end quote. The Times quotes a Brookings Institution researcher, Marcel Escobari, noting, quote, This time, people searching for jobs may have a lot of different options. That is not typical. End quote. Some economists believe this is a brief window in which low-wage workers can shift to better-paying jobs or ones with better conditions and opportunities. But before the pandemic, many cities and states had set new higher minimum wages. As I mentioned before, Amazon, Walmart, and other major businesses ratcheted up their minimum wages. A rise in the federal minimum wage paired with inflation adjustments hasn't yet passed, but some significant rise seems to be inevitable. $15 an hour was once a rallying cry, but it's now in the rear window of inflation. Seattle was a pioneer in this increase to $15 an hour. Despite all the warnings and concerns from people who said it would ruin business, we then had record low unemployment. Seattle's current wage, adjusted for inflation now over a few years, is $16.69 per hour. My soon-to-be 17-year-old child makes $16.69 an hour, running around an indoor soccer field with toddlers and small children for hours at a time, which is about double the inflation-adjusted wage my spouse and I earned at his age. Given labor shortages before the pandemic, it's hard to imagine this leverage ending abruptly now. But I'm no economist. It's the time of year when dictionary mavens decide which words should enter the formal lexicon. Or is it? Every year, a variant of the story makes the rounds, sometimes multiple times a year, because different dictionaries put out their own press releases, and some have better PR than others. A few days ago, it was Dictionary.com's turn, with NPR and others, reporting on new updates to the online word list that derives from Random House Webster's Unabridged Dictionary. NPR noted, quote, initialisms like DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, also made the dictionary alongside CW, content warning, and TW, trigger warning. Media alerts often shared before discussing potentially upsetting or violent topics, end quote. The Dictionary.com editors in a post acknowledged the ongoing contribution to American English provided by black Americans. Quote, we can thank black social media for the fun and multifunctional smash slang hit of yeet, variously used as a joyful interjection or verb for forms of quick, forceful motions. We can thank artist Ty Dollasign for popularizing the zesty zaddy, an alteration of daddy that means an attractive man who is also stylish, charming, and self-confident, end quote. Dictionary.com also expanded and revised definitions like asynchronous and synchronous, which pre-pandemic had typically technical meanings from the blog post, quote, We've added two key new senses, both of which are especially used in the context of remote, hybrid, or blended learning. Asynchronous, occurring or able to be completed independently according to a person's own self-paced schedule or within a broad window of time, but not coordinated to be completed in real time with another participant. Synchronous, occurring in real time, as with participants logged in at an appointed time for a live lecture or discussion. End quote. 
y'all is also finally making its entrance into that dictionary as a pronoun. Quote, long connected to Southern American English and Black English, y'all has been on the move, spreading in dialectal distribution since the late 1990s and growing more quickly with younger demographics than older ones. Today, y'all is less strictly perceived as dialectal, that is, part of a distinct regional variety of a language, and often disparaged as substandard. Y'all is also now used to convey an informal tone more than regional identity, end quote. Those of you who grew up speaking or study languages other than English will likely know already about a second person plural that's sort of the equivalent of y'all in many languages. These regular announcements of new words or new definitions always evoke a battle between descriptive and prescriptive language. Descriptive definitions and dictionaries reflect the evolution of a living tongue. Prescriptive ones try to stop the tide from coming in. As Merriam-Webster describes themselves on their site, quote, Merriam-Webster is a descriptive dictionary in that it aims to describe and indicate how words are actually used by English speakers and writers. Generally, the descriptive approach to lexicography does not dictate how words should be used or set forth rules of correctness, unlike the prescriptive approach, end quote. Some people want less to refer to severity and fewer to refer to quantity and insist that it's evidence of the degradation of language that people say less dogs and cats instead of fewer dogs and cats. Yet Merriam-Webster explains, quote, less has been used this way for well over a thousand years, nearly as long as there's been a written English language. But for more than 200 years, almost every usage writer and English teacher has declared such use to be wrong, end quote. Look, some people are still angry that decimate in English means to destroy nearly all of instead of to kill one of every ten soldiers in a mutinous regiment. It's original Latin meaning, even though the Oxford English Dictionary finds it entered English as a word only around 1600 and its alternate meaning of wholesale destruction dates to 1663. The traditional meaning of a word is often anything but. That is it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Glenn Fleischman. You can find me and tell me your words on Twitter at GlennF, G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank. I'll be here for the rest of the week, subbing in for Jackson Bird, who's on vacation, and we'll be back on Monday. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.